It's Wednesday, the 20th of June, and you're listening to The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, the podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets home can be found at www.stormwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to The Secrets, Series 4, Novels. I'm Michael A. Stackpole, a New York Times bestselling novelist. In this series, I'm going to take you through the various concerns that pop up during a novel's creation. As von Moltke said, no plan survives contact with the enemy. This is quite true of a novelist's intentions once he starts writing. For this first set of five podcasts, I'm using my novel, Star Wars X-Wing Rogue Squadron. I ran over the reasons for this particular choice in the series' first episode. The short form is this. It sold a lot of copies, so chances are it's one of the books most of the listeners have read and have on their shelves, so they can reference it as we go along. The book's wide circulation also minimizes the impact of spoilers, and there are going to be spoilers. That's not just in the form of revealing who lives and who dies, but also in pointing out little clues that tie things together or project into future books. If you don't want secrets revealed, just collect up this podcast with the next several in the set and save them until you've read Rogue Squadron. For those who are concerned that using a franchise novel isn't a good idea since franchise novels aren't real books, please allow yourself to be disabused of that notion. The best franchise books are the equals of any other novels. While certain demands are made on the author because of the rules laid down by the creative property's owner, the fact is that every book has limitations. An author writing a historical novel is hemmed in by history. Science fiction writers hemmed in by the laws of physics. One could even suggest that writers are hemmed in by the rules of their genres. Writing a book in a franchise universe is no easier than writing any other type of book and authors who think they can just phone in their performance suffer greatly when they do. You have to remember, any book is going to be someone's first exposure to your writing. It's their first chance to decide they're never going to read you again. Let's take a closer look at Rogue Squadron, and you'll see why that wasn't the case here. The start of any novel begins with a couple of goals and techniques. Roughly the first 25% of a novel, for me, is where I introduce the characters, the world, and the conflict, and then I get things rolling. In this case, that would cover chapters 1 through 10, but we'll include chapter 11 for today for a very specific reason. In the first draft, that was chapter 10. In approaching a novel, especially in a franchise universe, It's important to distill everything a reader needs to know about the universe down into a handful of points and layer them into the story at the start. You want them to feel at home with the rules so they can anticipate how things will work. Once they do that, you're free and clear to mess with them. And believe me, your job as a writer is to mess with the reader. In Rogue Squadron, I was fairly certain that anyone picking up the book would be familiar with the movies and would know how the universe works. Some might take that as meaning I didn't have to worry about explaining how the universe works. In fact, I had to do just the opposite. In essence, since everyone did know how it worked, I could start messing with their expectations right off. More importantly, I had to set some new expectations for them, since they weren't going to know many of the characters in the book. That's the reason for the very first line. You're good, Corin, but you're no Luke Skywalker. 
Right there I tell the readers, this isn't the Star Wars story you're used to reading. By the end of that first paragraph, you know there's a new character, Corrin Horn, who was told that by Wedge Antilles. And two paragraphs in, you know Corrin is cocky enough that he wants everyone to think he was as good as, if not better than, Luke Skywalker. That's a tall order to fill. And by the end of that second paragraph, Corrin has something to prove. Readers are already forming opinions. The rest of that first chapter does a whole bunch of things. First, it introduces several characters, including a mysterious pilot who wears an Imperial flight suit and has battle tabs indicating that he fought at Endor and survived the Death Star run. The reader knows it's not Wedge, so there's a lot of curiosity there, especially since the other pilots are impressed with his skill. The chapter also sets the tone for the series in containing a fairly explicit dogfight scene. Those combats and piloting runs would be standard fare for the series. Readers quickly get used to the maneuvering, and I had a lot of folks, including pilots, who said they could feel everything. That's a product of a lot of research and countless hours logged playing the X-Wing and TIE Fighter computer games. The first scenario also comes out of the X-Wing computer game. I called it the Redemption Scenario, but in the game it was the Reprieve Scenario, if I remember things right. That scenario had me baffled. I could not get past it. On a Friday, I called my editor and asked for the game's hint book so I could move through and past that. The book wouldn't arrive until Monday, so I kept at it over the weekend. Finally, on Sunday, I solved it. I solved the scenario. Then Monday, when the book arrived, I checked my solution against the one recommended in the book. I was very disappointed. The hint book solution was completely unrealistic. No one would ever do what they suggested in a combat situation. So Corrin uses my solution to the scenario. And when the book came out, I had a lot of readers who recognized the scenario and actually liked the solution. In Chapter 2, we introduce more characters. Wedge Antilles and Admiral Akbar are familiar from the movies. I got into Wedge's head and had him thinking like a commander who wants to have the best unit possible, is aware of politics within the service, and wants to help a friend out. General Salm was created to provide Wedge with a foil and someone who would force him to conform to the demands of the service. While Salm was created for the novels, I used him in the X-Wing comics, too, and got to explain more of his background, making his concerns clear. By the end of this chapter, we learn Tycho's background. Salm sees him as a threat, Tycho being that mysterious pilot we saw in the previous chapter. Tycho only wants to help the squadron and is willing to go to extraordinary lengths to do so. Akbar agrees to allow him to train the pilots, but already there's a sense that he's being treated unfairly. Still, he could be the threat Psalm believes he is. Again, the readers are given more to think about, and this roots Tycho in their brains. Also, in these first two chapters, we have two of the three droids introduced who will function in the series. Let's face it, it can't be Star Wars without droids. Whistler is Corrin's R2 unit. I based him on a green R2 unit from the first film, though I don't imagine he is that droid. I was just really happy with the name Whistler, since it's perfect for an R2 unit, and I like the color green. M-Tray is a military protocol droid. There wasn't any sort of droid with that designation in the source material, so I took the body of a 3PO droid and slapped a flight controller droid's head on it. That gave me a character who could be as annoying as C-3PO, but different. It's the difference that makes readers wonder about him, and again, sucks them in. Chapter 3, we visit the villains. 
we establish that one of Corrin's enemies has gotten access to a friend of his and is ruthless enough to stop at nothing to extract information. I remember listening to the audiobook of Rogue Squadron, and they started that chapter with the Imperial March. I actually had goosebumps, though I do think Vader's theme is a bit exaggerated for Kirtan Lure. We also get more information on Corrin here without him telling us about himself, and that's a plus. Chapter 4 was never in the original manuscript. It introduces the character of Lujane Forge. From the start, I knew she'd be one of the poorest pilots, but she would also be the squadron's heart. She's the sort of person who would remember everybody's birthday and arrange parties. I also knew she'd be the first person to die, and that she would die in her sleep. Her death would be grossly unfair, and would make readers angry. And they would, therefore, be really happy when Rogue Squadron avenged her a bit later on. My editor, Tom Dupree, did not think she'd been characterized well enough in the book, so he asked me to put another chapter in to do that. Chapter 4 gives us more on her and on Earl, the Gand. Much of what Earl says in this chapter was cannibalized from later in the book. Suffice it to say, Lujane is a uniter and lets Corrin know that he's got to be less of a loner. It sets things up pretty well. And for at least one reader, it set things up too well. After the book came out, I had email from a man who thought Lujane was very much like a friend of his with whom he had served in the army. They'd been in the military police, and his friend, a woman, had been killed. Reading about Lujane and her death reopened that wound. He wrote to ask, since we never actually see Lujane's body, if I could bring her back to life. I actually had two rounds of correspondence with him over this issue because later on, another character who also dies off screen does get brought back to life. I had to explain that I couldn't bring Lujane back because while we didn't see her body, her death had a very strong emotional impact. To bring her back to life would negate the feelings and readers would feel cheated. While I'm sympathetic to his feelings, Lujane wasn't his friend and his grief is not over Lujane's death. Even so, when something like that does happen, it gets into your head as a writer, or it should. If it doesn't, you're not putting emotion into the work. While we'd all like plenty of happy stories, without sadness, how can you know what happy is? You can't. And the most powerful and rewarding of reading experiences are those which take you through the full range of emotions. Chapters 5 and 6 give us some more character backstory, tie into chapter 3 and let Coronel, an old enemy, may have killed an old friend and is coming after him. In many stories, there's a building to an inevitable battle between enemies. Readers understand this. It's a, it's a familiar theme. And because they anticipate how it'll end, you're free to twist their expectations around and use them against them. More importantly, here we have the facts of life laid out. If a pilot is going to die, it's going to be in the first five missions. The reader has to be figuring out the odds of who's going to live and who's going to die. Sure, there are a couple of characters who are not characterized at all, so we know they're on the bubble. But what about the ones we've begun to like? Are there any of them who are going to die? Curiously, though, Wedge won't let himself get to know any of them. And the reader already knows too many of them. If any of them die, and the reader has to figure some will, it's going to hurt. So, as we step into our missions, the tension builds. Readers have to fear that someone is going to get it, which means we have the sort of emotional engagement critical in a book. Chapter 7 is back to Wedge and starting a training exercise. Here, Wedge does a walk-around on his X-Wing. 
I had him do that because all pilots check their ships out before flying them. It gave me a wonderful chance to describe an X-Wing, which is a feel-good moment for all the folks into Star Wars tech. We also get to see how cool a hand Wedge is in the ship, reference the movies, and introduce his droid, Minoc. Finally, and importantly, we have Wedge and Tycho conspiring to make Corrin's life miserable. That might seem petty, but we're at a point in the story where character ambitions begin to collide. Corrin wants to be acknowledged as the best pilot around. Wedge needs a pilot who will do his duty, not a hotshot that won't follow orders. Is Corrin going to change or not? This is the question that Wedge needs answered, and the action that takes place, as well as Corrin's reaction to it, will both set our sense of the characters and decide for the readers if the characters are interesting. In Chapter 8, we get the results. Corrin is a good pilot, but he's mortified that he scores the lowest of anyone in the flight. He confronts Wedge, and Wedge, as commander and a leader must, is direct and strong. He lays things out for Corrin and lets him know that it's going to be done Wedge's way, or Corrin is free to leave. Corrin, who's been without a moral compass since the death of his father and is leaving Corellia, has to pit his pride and ambition against his need and desire to belong to a group again. It's not an easy choice, but it's one he makes. And then we have Corrin and Tycho chatting, which leads us to learn more in Chapter 9 about Tycho. They talk about Han Solo, and Corrin realizes that security personnel are treating Tycho as if he's a criminal. Here's a mystery for Corrin to mull over, and readers get to wonder what Corrin is going to do about it. Finally, in Chapter 9, we have Arizi, another pilot, approach Corrin and invite him to join the rest of the squadron. Corrin doesn't want to, but the rest of the squadron feels bad about how he was treated in the exercise. They want to apologize. Moreover, and, and the reader gets this, Wedge's lesson for Corrin is helping make the squadron into a unit. Reezy's also useful in two other ways here. First, she's a potential romantic element, and you need that. Everyone gets a thrill from romance, and it creates another humanizing thread or vulnerability for the characters. Bringing Reezy in here, I was also able to lay the groundwork for a later romantic triangle. Equally important, Reezy's a tie back into the culture of the planet Thyphera, where Bacta comes from. This will be vital through the rest of this series and is being set up here. What we'll be using a couple hundred thousand words down the line starts right at this point. Chapter 10 brings us Kirtan Lourdes again. This chapter has two purposes. First, we're introduced to Coruscant. This is the Imperial capital and will be the site of much of the action in the second novel. I wanted to have it be impressive and huge and everything we remember from the brief glimpse in the movies. Here we also meet Yazani Icehart for the first time. She's the grand villain of the piece, and she has to come on strong from the start. She says of herself, I rule here now, and I'm determined to destroy this rebellion. It's pretty clear that her goals and those of our heroes are in conflict. Finally, in Chapter 11, Wedge is getting orders. We have the politics of the situation worked out. Rogue Squadron is going to be a symbol, so they'll be visible. This means they'll be vulnerable and they've barely had any training. Things are moving very fast, and the Rebellion is stepping up operations. A military campaign is about to begin, and Rogue Squadron is a linchpin of the whole operation. Originally, that chapter marked the end of the first quarter of the book and the translation into the middle. In the next several podcasts, we'll cover that middle, the growing complications, and move into the last quarter of the book, where things accelerate and draw to a close. You'll be able to see the through line of activity, though it won't be a straight line. 
And it's those twists and turns that are where we play with the reader expectations and what, in part, makes a book memorable. But that's upcoming over the next three shows. This is Michael A. Stackpole for The Secrets. Thanks for listening. By now, all of you know that this podcast is an audio adjunct to The Secrets, my writing newsletter, which is available by subscription over the net. Subscribers pay a dollar an issue for advice and discussions about everything from character creation and world building to the effects of technology on publishing. Is it worth a dollar an issue to make your writing the best it possibly could be? Issue 78 just came out, and it covers dealing with fads in publishing, what to do so you're not caught, and how to make your work stand out so you'll actually have a career. Don't forget to visit www.stormwolf.com to get your sample issue of The Secrets. My latest novel, Masters of War, came out in April, in case you missed it. The next book, The New World, will hit bookstore shelves on 28 June, so that's about a week from now. And we'll finish off the Age of Discovery trilogy. And thanks to all of you, the first book in that series, A Secret Atlas, just went back to press for more in the mass market editions. So, you know, go ahead and recommend it to friends. There should be plenty there for them to get. An anthology, as I mentioned last time, Army of the Fantastic, edited by John Marcos and John Helfers, came out. And I've got a story in that called Wildest Dreams. I hope you'll uh, look for that. And I'm also really excited about the Fortress Draconis podcast. I'm reading the novel, Fortress Draconis, chapter by chapter, releasing one a week or so. Uh, sometimes I do more than one a week. I'm having great fun reading it, and we just released chapter six. Quite frankly, if you're not hooked after that chapter, <laughs> I have no clue why you're interested in imaginative fiction at all. I invite you to come over to www.stormwolf.com to check it out, or you can subscribe through iTunes. The podcast is free, but if you want to go out and buy the novel or the prequel to it, The Dark Glory War, and support the effort, I would appreciate that very much. This podcast is copyright 2007 by Michael A. Stackpole. Again, thanks for listening. I'll be back in a fortnight or so with more about working with words. Until then, good luck with your writing.